It's this, uh, December 22nd, 2007. We're looking at uh, Ma- uh, Matthew Part 2, Lesson 4, which is a focus on Chapter 14. Let's open in prayer. Our Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for uh, all the things that you give to us, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its sure promises. We thank you that you care enough about us to reveal yourself in intricate detail. Father, we thank you that you have communicated to us in our language and that you represent yourself in ways that we can understand because we know that you are incomprehensible and that you are infinite and beyond our imagination. And Father, we know that you care enough about us uh, to uh, present yourself to us in a way that we can understand. And we thank you that you've given us Yeshua, the perfect representation of all that you want us to understand about you. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Then Job answered and said, Truly, I know it is so. How can a man be righteous before God? If one wishes to contend with him, he would not answer him one time out of a thousand. God is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against and prop, who has hardened himself against him and prospered? He removes the mountains and they do not know. When he overturns them in his anger, he shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it does not rise. He seals off the stars. He alone spreads out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Job nine one through eight. And then from our uh, chapter this week from Matthew fourteen twenty five. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Yeshua went to them walking on the sea. Uh, last week we looked at parables. <clears throat> Remember, a parable is not an allegory. It does not mean that a parable cannot have multiple meanings. Uh, like any scripture, you can let it mean what you want it to mean, or maybe maybe. What's important to you in that moment, God speaks to you through it. Uh, but that's not the intent of a parable. A parable has, uh, is simply is a simple story trying to make one or two points, one or two main points. Um, I know that's somewhat... I mean, I think that's a little bit difficult for us. I know that for myself, when, I've, when, I, when it suddenly dawned on me reading the parables and, and, and seeing how they are written and then comparing them to the parables that we read in other texts, uh, other other books, it becomes really obvious, uh, and it is a little bit uncomfortable because we've we've been taught that parables have you know deep hidden meanings, um, and uh, we've built theologies around those deep hidden meanings. Unfortunately, theologies that cannot stand on their own two legs because there is no scriptural reference to them except in those metaphorical allegorical parables uh, which is very unfortunate Um, I'll give you an example before we go on and that is the idea that um, you may have heard this before if you haven't uh, don't let it throw you for a loop but a theology that says after the resurrection after after Yeshua's or excuse me before Yeshua's resurrection he descended into hell and there he preached to all the saints who preceded uh, his death, burial, and resurrection. And, and uh, they accepted him as their savior. And on the basis of that, he took them out of hell. Uh, from this very, very concept, we have, we have, uh, we have in fact, um, uh, built, the, the Roman Catholic Church built a concept of purgatory. Um, even good Protestants uh, continue this theology, uh, and yet it's all based upon 
the parable of the rich man the parable of the rich man and Lazarus the poor man mm-hmm. that's right it sure does the nice my understanding of purgatory is actually purgatory is actually a Jewish thought as well that's true uh, purgatory is actually based on in 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 Jewish uh, when I say Jewish, I'm not talking about biblical necessarily, but I'm talking about Jewish theology. Has they don't call it purgatory. Uh, they have a, they have they have a they have a place where people go that everybody goes that uh, the wicked go or the not quite so wicked. Actually, the wicked are all destroyed immediately. Not quite so wicked. They go there for a period of time. Uh, I think it's a year. Well, from the book of from 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 the story of of of, of the rich man and Lazarus, we actually read about uh, Lazarus. There was a man named Lazarus, a poor man. And when he died, he was carried into the into the into uh, the bosom of Abraham. What is the bosom of Abraham? Actually, if you read about it, it says he's carried into paradise. What's paradise? It's the garden. Huh? It's the place of the righteous. But there was a man who was very rich, and he was carried. When he died, he was he was he was he was taken into a place of torment. Right? And he looked across a great divide and a great gulf, and he could see Lazarus. The poor man saying, "What's up with this?" Looking at Father Abraham, especially, and here's the here's the here's the story behind the story. Uh, tradition says that Father Abraham stands at the date at the gates of Sheol and checks everyone going in. Are you circumcised or not? And if you're circumcised, you don't go in. If you are, then uh, absolutely, that's where you belong. <laughs> so here's the rich man, Jewish man, standing in the hot side. Looking out, calling across the across the Gulf, saying, "What's up with this, Father Abraham? Hello, <laughs> what am I doing on the wrong side?" Right. So that's the story behind the story. However, the point is the theology has been taught. Why? Because all of the points of the story were somehow being related in real life. This must be really something that happens. Well, it's not. It's neither that nor that. It's neither this nor that. It's not something that really happens. What he's doing is he's using an illustration. What's the illustration of Lazarus and the rich man? What's the illustration? Those who have, those who live it up and have all the comforts of this life don't necessarily get all the comforts of the next. That's it. Nothing else. No more to it, really. However, he does say some really amazing things at the very end that seems to me people have all disregarded. The, the, the rich man says, Father Abraham, send someone back. And what's Yeshua's response? They have Moses. He testifies of me. They have Moses. Moses? How can Moses convince anybody? And what does he say? Even if someone comes back from the dead, if they will not believe Moses, they'll not believe someone who comes back from the dead. You know, Yeshua says it several times in the Gospels. He says, if you don't believe Moses, you're not going to believe me. People who think that you can discard whole two-thirds of three-quarters of Scripture (laughs) and then somehow, because we have a new story, that somehow that will convince, and it's not. We have to start at the. We have to start where God starts at the very beginning. But can I take you back to Yeshua ascended? 
I have, I have, I have no difficult. I'm not interested in this story. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm just no. I'm just what I want to what I want to point out though is that theology is based upon. I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong. It's based upon the parable. Is the point. It's based upon the parable, as opposed to finding other scriptures that will support it. And it's a very important point. Look, it made its way into the Nicene Creed. How is it possible it makes its way into the Nicene Creed? It's so obscure, other than the parable. Actually, there's a lot of things made in. Not that I disagree, but a lot of things made their way into the Nicene Creed that you kind of go, okay, give me the scripture for this. You know, quick. Don't give me a concept. Give me the verse. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting what we create, the structure, the theological structure that we create in order to support something that we can say, I believe. When we have a structure that actually is very intricate and detailed, but it's not what you say, it's what you do. Uh, and you don't have to say anything. Isn't that interesting? It's a shift. It's a profound shift. Judaism has not escaped this shift either. Judaism is just as guilty as Christianity in this issue. Uh, and that is that they, it is much more important to identify yourself with a group, with a belief system, than it is simply to live obediently as God has said. Um, this is a challenge for us all. None of us has escaped this. We as human beings naturally want to be able to talk without walking. Anyway, the point of the parables, and I was just using that as an example, not to discount or to include, either way, as an example of a theology that's built upon, a, upon an allegory, instead of recognizing it was a sermon illustration. Okay? Uh, one of the things we also saw is, just briefly, we talked about this, that the kingdom of heaven, we've been seeing this, the kingdom of heaven, remember, the kingdom of heaven is a circumlocution, an evasive synonym for the name of God. It's the kingdom of God. That's what it's, when you say the kingdom of heaven. And this focus upon heaven, not that it's bad, believe me, but the idea is that the word heaven is a circumlocution. It's a, it's a substitute for God's name. Heaven forbid, the phrase, means... God forbid, right? It does. Uh, we do it in English. It's the same thing in the Gospels, and Yeshua uses it consistently. So we talk about the kingdom of heaven. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Gospel message. It's not going to heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not going to heaven. The kingdom of heaven is whether you want or willing to obey. That's the kingdom of heaven. Whether a relationship with the king, remember subjects and kings, there's only one king, many subjects. Whether you are willing to be a subject to the king, that's, that is the kingdom of heaven. Whether it be now in your individual life or corporately and in in collectively in, 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 a, in a time yet future. Or even collectively in this congregation, collectively in the body of Yeshua, worldwide, are we willing to obey him? That is what the basis of it. But we need to understand this king, this king that we're talking about, that's being presented to us, first presented to us mysteriously with a genealogy, uh, with a name or names, and then being represented as, as a miracle worker, a teacher. This king's more than just a king, isn't he? This king walks on water. This is a big deal, right? Uh, go to Matthew 14.4. We're in chapter 14, 
And, and we have the story of John again. We're, we're, John, uh, Yochanan, the immerser, John the baptizer, the immerser, is being presented to us many times in this book, at least in the first, in the first half of this book. And now we see him again, and it's the last time. Right. Uh, well, it's the last time he's directly alluded to, and and uh, and we we discover how it is that he was in prison, and how it is that he finds his uh, demise. Uh, in verse four, it says uh, he had been in prison. But John, uh, first of all, does everybody know that this Herod is not the Herod that tried to? <laughs> okay. Uh, in fact, uh, um, uh, there's uh, unfortunately the word Herod. If you look in your homework, the, the the name Herod is a family name. It's not a. It's not a. It's not always father and son. Uh, it's it's nephew. It's it's uh, all sorts of weird family relationships because it's a very weird family. Um, uh, the, the Herod family name, though Herod the Great, the first Herod in the list, is not Jewish. He's converted to Judaism. He's uh, he's really from, he's an Edomite. He's from what would be the modern country of Jordan today. He's not Jewish. He's not born Jewish. He converts to Judaism. His wife was uh, his wife was Jewish. Uh, well, <laughs> actually, um, yeah, that's a long story. Which wife? Um, and, and 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 as as well, this wife. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Are you going back to Egypt, or are you going back to Uh well, that's the same one. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. That is the same. Yeah, the one, the one in. You're talking about the one while he was in, in Egypt. Yeah. Well, I don't know who that was. You're talking about the Pharaoh. Oh, okay. No, 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 no. This is this is Herod. This is Herod from from uh, the time of uh, the time of uh, not Yeshua's birth. Well, it was from Yeshua's birth, but also he was he was he was king then. But Herod, as described, probably several years after Yeshua's birth, when the uh, when the wise men from the east come. Yeah, that Herod, who killed uh, the innocents in Bethlehem. Yes. Um, verse four. Uh, but this is not that Herod. This is this is a this is a different Herod, uh, because John had said to him to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have her, his wife. Actually, let me step back. For Herod, verse three. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, his brother Philip's wife. Uh, there's all sorts of weird brother sister, uh, brother. Uh, or, or, and and, uh, and brother, sister-in-law, weird, weird stuff going on in this family. Well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? What's wrong with having your brother's wife? I'm marrying your sister. What's wrong with it? Huh? Well, but we're not bound by Levitical law, are we? Please, show me from Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Revelation chapter 22, where it is wrong... To marry your brother's wife. Well, in this case, it's adultery. Well, that's it, but that's not what he accuses him of. He's married to her. Uh, well, I understand that, but that's not what he. He doesn't say you're adulterous. Why, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong for a man to marry a sister? Why is it wrong? Show me Matthew one through Revelation twenty two. Why is it wrong? Well, well, we can come up with scientific reasons, but why does God say it's wrong? Does God say it's wrong? 
You see, the minute we start playing this game, we have to start playing it now. We have to start doing funny things with Scripture. What we have to do is we have to go read from Leviticus 18. And we have to say, oh, this still applies. However, there's other places in Leviticus. The very chapter of Leviticus 18, we go, no, no, this doesn't apply anymore. This has been taken care of, sealed at the cross. Why? Prove it to me. I need to be convinced if that's true. Actually, I don't need to be convinced because I completely and utterly reject it. Why do I utterly reject it? Because if God says it, he does not undo it. The thought is, well, God could set it. He's the king. He can annul it. But that goes against the very nature of how God describes himself. He speaks and he does. It's the way the morning prayers begin in the, begin in the synagogue. Blessed is he who speaks and does. He does what he promises. He never annuls his word. Never, not once, never, ever, ever, ever. He does not trick us and say, if you want to find your way to me, you must do this. And by the way, it won't work. Won't that be funny? And I'll convince you that you need something else. Absolutely not. The law was not given for us to be convinced that we couldn't keep it. Because within the very law are provisions for not keeping it. If you sin, bring a sacrifice to me. He recognizes that we are frail humans and we will not keep it. And yet he still calls us to live a much more difficult life than we want to. But then he tells us, in Deuteronomy 30 and in 1 John he tells us I have not called you to do the impossible I've called you to do the difficult it's not too hard oh can you live perfectly we have a man here who can live perfectly Yeshua can live perfectly but are we still going to say that we can't we shouldn't because we can't should I not even begin if I can't ever keep from telling a lie should I stop telling lies Or should I just give up? That's the way of the world. That's nihilism. Just give up. Just give yourself over to despair. There's no hope of ever doing it right. Why try? (laughs) Well, first of all, not marrying your brother's wife is not a hard thing. (laughs) That's not even remotely hard, is it? Well, apparently it was for Herod. (laughs) Paul, or excuse me, John, says it's not lawful that you have your brother's wife. What were we going to ask? Um, well, I'm, you're just getting me confused because... I confuse myself too, so it's okay. The Old Testament was the law then, wasn't it? All, well, all of God's word is the law. But they didn't have any testament. That's true. That's true. So the, the question becomes, when does it stop becoming the law is the only question. My, my point in saying where in the New Testament does it say this is to say people retroactively place this. In other words, when people read this, they, they're easily put in their mind and go, oh, well, that was the law then, but it's not the law now. Well, no, they, everybody says it's wrong to, have, have, to marry your sister or marry your brother's wife or whatever. Yeah, everybody says, yeah, well, okay, you can accept that. But where do they get it from? They get it from the part that they said no longer applies. Yeah. Well, they play games. There's, you've heard this. There's the moral law, and then there's the ritual law or ceremonial law. You find it very difficult to find Scripture describe itself in any way remotely such as that. Is the Sabbath a moral law? 
or a ritual law? It's a law. <laughs> See the point? Yeah. Which is it? It's a law. God does this break his and we saw in Psalm one nineteen, those of you did that we did a couple years ago. We saw in, that there are breakdown of the of the, the laws, the instructions of God are broken down. They are broken down into categories. Six hundred and thirteen are broken into various categories, but there is no definition of moral and civil and none of the none of the categories have anything bearing on whether they apply or don't apply. I'm a man, so obviously instructions to women don't apply to me. <laughs> but is it still in effect? Yes. Yes, ma'am. I, I guess the only thing I want to say for people who may have come in at some other point sure. is that the sacrificial law was completed with the sacrifice of Yeshua, who, who is our ultimate redemption. There's no question that the sacrificial laws never, ever promised eternal life or forgiveness for sin. What they promised was they promised atonement, covering. Unfortunately, our theology has used the word atonement and forgiveness interchangeably. Forgiveness is ultimate, eternal. Atonement is covering. And the sacrificial laws have been, in my mind, wrongly applied to the theology of Yeshua's sacrifice at the cross. They are similar but not the same the laws within the tabernacle were specifically with the offerings were specifically to deal with a, with a single problem how can an unholy person people a, a people who ha- cannot bear the eternal or the immaterial or the uh, um, infinite come into the presence of an infinite God more importantly, how can an infinite God come into the presence of a people who are, who are not? And God created levels of holiness so that when you get to the very center of that tabernacle, you have, you have this holy of holies. And within those levels of holiness, he required protocols as you moved in. Protocols. Only certain people and only certain times could come further in so that the point only the, ho- ho- pre- the high priest could go into the holy holies only once, once in a year. All of that was designed to keep people not to get forgiveness for their sins. If I lived in the Negev and I sinned, I did not need to go to Jerusalem to get forgiveness for my sins. That's a misapplication of those laws of offering. Those laws of the offering was, when I'm a man, and I'm required to go three times a year to Jerusalem, as God said, at Passover, at Shavuot, and at Sukkot, when I go, if I want to go and praise God in the temple, I need to be prepared in such a way that I won't die. So that meant, well, before I went in to offer a, I had a good year, a peace offering. A thanksgiving offering. I also had to give a sin offering so that I wouldn't die. Had nothing to do with forgiveness. Had only to do with the fact that I didn't want to die while I was there worshiping. <laughs> so, the answer to your question is: Was that fulfilled in Yeshua? Only in the in, only in the sense that that Yeshua is the one that brings complete forgiveness, and yes, you won't die in the presence of God. 
That's right. Uh, but does that mean that it was fulfilled in the sense that, that what, what their purpose was? Uh, there, there's no correlation in that regard because we don't have a temple today. If we ever have a temple today, it'll be a difficult question for Christians and Messianics. Should I go or not? Well, isn't it true, though, that even after Messiah uh, ascended to heaven, that the apostles went back to the temple and offered sacrifices? And that's the answer to the question is, should I go or not? The question is, what did the first disciples do? They went. What did Paul do? In Acts chapter 21, he went and offered, he went to, in preparation to offer an offering. Which offering? Actually, it tells us specifically the offering for the completion of a Nazarite vow. And the significance that when Yeshua died, the veil of the Holy of Holies was drawn from the top. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was what was hidden was now made available to all. Right. Absolutely. But was I can promise you the disciples didn't go. You know, I know what happened here, and step aside. I'm walking into the Holy of Holies. They did not. I'm not. Well, I know, but Remember, the temple stood for 40 years after the resurrection, and the, and the disciples continued to go there. Paul tells us specifically how he made effort to go there. Efforts. All the way through the book of Acts, he's making efforts to go. We're getting off track. I've got to get back on. We, we can bring this up any other time. Um, Leviticus 18.16. Uh, like we said, here it is. It says, uh, 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 our, our father Jacob had two sisters. That's forbidden. Yeah, it is. It's forbidden. Uh, our uh, uh, here in this case, uh, having his brother's wife—that's forbidden. It's forbidden. And 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 John makes this point. Uh, by the way, it is there is something similar—not the same, but similar—in the book of First Corinthians. And what do we see in First Corinthians? Paul says that this man who's living in Corinth has his father's wife. Well, that's, that's come from that very same passage in Leviticus 18. And that's forbidden as well. Where did Paul get his morality? Paul got his morality from the same place that everyone who loves, loves God's word gets his morality from Scripture. Now, Paul didn't just make it up and go, you know, I think it seems right to me. <laughs> come on, it's not obvious to y'all. That's what he says. It's not obvious to y'all. Even the pagans know this. Well, what did the pagans know? The pagans had no problem with that. They had no problem with anybody marrying anybody. Caesar married his horse. So they had no problem with they had no problem with with this. What Paul is saying is even the pagans, even the unbelievers, know this. Is they know this about you? They know this that those people who live by the words of this book are supposed to live by them, and they know that men don't marry their father's wife, <laughs> right? Even though the pagans would certainly have not had any problem with it at all, they have problem with it. believers. Identifying with the scriptures and the God of Israel doing it. That's what they had a problem with. So Paul says that's wrong. And, and in fact, he, he prescribes what we call excommunication, which is a very Jewish concept and carried out in rabbinic Judaism even to this day. Uh, excommunication it was not a, okay, we ban you, uh, you know, you're no longer saved. There's <laughs> nothing like that. It was, we cannot communicate with you because you identify with, your, we, we, you identify with the enemy. That's it. Excommunicate. Ex, we can't communicate fellowship with you because you're you're not us. When you start acting like us, then then you're welcome back in. Paul prescribes this. Second Corinthians, we actually see Paul re- resolving it and saying, "Listen, once a guy repents, come on, take him back in." All right. Let's get into this uh, parable. Oh, this parable. This account of feeding bread to five thousand. The frame of reference is found in chapter one, verse thirteen. Yeshua is out in the in the in the in, in, in the. Uh, 
He's not in a, in a, in a city or anything else. He's out, he's out there uh, ministering um, uh, and, and, and away, from, away from civilization. People have, have come to him in, in, uh, in droves. People are, are gathered around him in droves. Um, Go to chapter uh, 14, verse 13. When Shua heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed on foot from the cities. By the way, when it says he goes there by himself, you often, often find that when he goes to a place by himself, he goes to pray. Okay? Um, there's a very rich tradition of praying by oneself um, uh, in, in the wilderness even, uh, out away from civilization. Anybody ever see the movie Ushpazin? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's dubbed into English subtitles, or actually subtitles. Uh, it's about Sukkot. It's about a Orthodox couple living in Jerusalem during Sukkot, and how they have uh, a couple unwanted, you know, jerks for guests for Sukkot. And uh, in the in the, but in the movie, in the movie, there's a couple of times in the movie where the man is very upset. The star of the movie is very upset. Orthodox Jew, and you see him run out of the city into the fields or whatever else to pray. This is this is on the same tradition, same tradition. The idea of going out in the wilderness or out away from people to pray. Uh, um, Yeshua gives us this instruction we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, uh, you know, go into your closet and pray. Same idea, except he's going out into the wilderness. It's a very, it's a very, it's a very Hasidic thing go into the wilderness to pray so we see him going out there alone where he can be by himself verse 14 and when Yeshua went out went out he saw a great multitude and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick when it was evening his disciples came and said this is a deserted place and the hour is already late send the multitudes away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food and Yeshua said to them they do not need to go away you give them something to eat and they said to him we have only five loaves and two fish and he said bring them here to me and he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven he blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the fishes and the disciples and gave to the multitudes uh, this is just a little side this is Hamotzi right this is Hamotzi he made a bracha he made a blessing uh, you know from this we actually have a new theology and that is that you need to bless the food it seems like a small matter but you know that's kind of pagan you know where it comes from comes from the idea that if you bless the food, any food's good food. Anything, you, you can eat anything if you bless it. You don't get sick. My dad used to say, you better pray before you eat, you'll get sick on that. <laughs> That's not what's occurring here. Who's he blessing? He says it. He looks up to heaven and he makes a blessing. What is it to bless before we eat or after we eat, more importantly? What is it to bless associated with eating? Why do we bless God when we eat? That's it. Why? It's a recognition that it comes from Him. That's what, that's, these little things in here are what prove, anybody that, I doubt anybody here is a doubter, but that prove these, these words written down in Greek are authentic Hebrew. Everybody goes back to the scripture 
Uh, Yeshua was saying it's not what you put in your mouth that comes out. Yeah, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which I tell them, it's, he's not talking. He's not. He's talking about a spiritual thing. That's right. Necessarily, what you're putting in. You could eat righteously, that? supposedly, and not be righteous. Yeah. Interestingly enough, what you're talking about in Mark is a discussion on on. I think we get to that later on in Matthew too. It's a discussion not on not on meat. He's like, well, you can eat pig. Uh, it's not on meat, it's on bread. The discussion is about bread. And the discussion specifically focuses on whether you can eat bread without washing your hands. Maybe that, maybe that doesn't seem obvious to you all. Maybe, I, maybe it isn't. Uh, but actually, it's a very, if, you, if, you visit, if you visit Israel, you'll immediately see what's going on. Whether you can eat without washing your hands? Yes. Everywhere you go, every restaurant, if it's a kosher restaurant, there's a little stand over in the corner in the back. And it's got a, it's got a sink. And it's got a two-handled cup. And a two-handled cup is to wash your hands. Three times on one hand, three times on the other hand. Does it get your hands clean? No. It's to bless God for first washing my hands and then going blessing God for the eating. It is, uh, I don't want to discount the tradition, but it is a tradition that's never commanded that we wash our hands before we eat. And that's Yeshua's point. You don't have to wash your hands before you eat. Where does it say that? That's what he's saying. Where does it say that? Again, I'm not discouraging the tradition. It's just that it doesn't ever say that. And that's Yeshua's point in Mark. And here, we talk about blessing, like you say, we talk about blessing blessing the food as if to make the food it's the same problem you understand Yeshua would, would have just as much problem with that as saying you need to wash your hands before you eat otherwise you might get sick it's like what there's, there's some sort of there's some sort of, of, of innate evil in food that somehow you have to bless it so that it becomes acceptable no God has described what food is to us Leviticus chapter 11 he described what food is after that it's food you might get sick on it, but it's because there's microbes on it, not because there's some evil spirit in it. What do we want to do is we want to bless God. We want to thank Him. Why? Because this is the basis for all that we have. And that's what He's doing here. He's thanking God. What's really interesting is they take the time to tell us this. Why does Matthew take the time to tell us this? Because what's about to occur occurs every single day for all of us. You see, it's a miracle. Five loaves and two fishes feed 5,000 every time we eat. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. We have a God who loves us so much He provides even things that taste good. He gave you taste buds to appreciate it. Why? This is that fundamental thing about Judaism that is wonderful. And that is every mundane common thing can be used as worship even eating is worship yeah in the uh, chapter 24 of Acts Paul's before Felix and he, he says uh, I admit to you that according to the way which they call sect we do serve the God of our fathers believing everything that is in accordance with the law that is written in the prophet. That's right. So they were continuing to do the same thing. They were. They were. And they kept some traditions. They kept some traditions. And this tradition of praying before you eat, thanking God before you eat, it's a wonderful tradition. It's never commanded. We're never told we have to do it. It's, it's, but it's our master's tradition. But you know, he wasn't the one that started it. It was a long tradition. It was used hundreds of years before Yeshua came and was born. Was that... You thank God before you eat. 
So it's a very good tradition. It's a, it's, it's a Pharisee tradition. Pharisees are the ones praying before they eat. Uh, does that make Yeshua a Pharisee? Uh, no, but he's similar. Let's, let's continue. Uh, makes Pharisees maybe like him. So they all ate and were filled and took up 12 basketfuls of the fragments that remained. And those who had eaten were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, I've told you that parables are not allegories or mystical. That's not their primary purpose. But there are no words of Scripture that are missing. The measurements of the tabernacle are true measurements, and they're also mystical. So is there something mystical here? And I've given you a concept, an idea, a scope that might, in fact, say that there's some mystical meaning here. Obviously, the, the, the most important thing is, though, that the bread, he's serving them bread, uh, which is the identification with Moses. That's the most important picture. Some identification with Moses. Go to John chapter 6. Verse 12. Here's here's John's take on this feeding of the 5,000. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain so that none is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets and the fragments of the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Then those men who had seen the sign that Yeshua did said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Thank you. You see, he's saying, What did he just do? said the prophet what's the prophet if you read the first part of the book of Acts you can see that Stephen and Peter make this point as well this Yeshua this Yeshua that we follow he was the one that Moses spoke of when he said a prophet will come like me see that the pattern of Moses is being repeated Yeshua is the prophet like Moses it's another reason why we should not and we should not diminish Moses. As great as Moses is, Yeshua is greater. But understand, if you diminish Moses, you, you diminish Yeshua. The one like Moses. What did Moses do? Well, Moses didn't do anything. But where was he? He led them out of Egypt by God's command, by the outstretched staff. And what, and what, what occurred when they were hungry, when they were famished? Manna, Manna from heaven. That's right. Meat. Until it came out their nose. Manna from heaven. So, we see this one like Moses. He's motivated by compassion. He answers, he answers their need. But what he really is doing is he's showing what? He's Messiah. I'm the one like Moses. I feed 5,000. Uh, the miracle of the bread is that uh, it's, recognized, uh, it's recognized as coming from God. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate it has to be a miracle for us to recognize it comes from God that's true Second Kings 4 barley loaves uh, we see this barley loaves uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, you don't need to turn there we don't have time but Second Kings 4 42-44 I put the reference down this bread of first fruits barley is first fruits it's the first grain that's harvested it, it is it is uh, and and the focus of the miracle is that they shall eat and have some left over. Uh, we see this leftovers as an important picture of this. This reference back to Second Kings, this, something left over is an important point that we are supposed to be getting from Matthew. There's 12 left over. There's 12 baskets. 12. 12 baskets. 12. That, that's not months of the year. What's 12? 
It's 12 disciples, but what else is 12? These 12 will sit on 12 thrones. Okay, yeah. But why 12 thrones? 12 tribes. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, It's too obvious, right? 12 tribes. 12 tribes. It's Israel. It's Israel. And that's true as well. That's right. There's something, and, that, and that's what I asked you to do. Remember, there's something else. This is about something else. This is about something more than just feeding 5,000 people. That's right. That's right. Some came to eat. That's right. Some did not. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Uh, later on in the book of John, chapter 6, Yeshua makes this correlation between him and what comes down from heaven. In verse 26, it says, Yeshua answered and said, Most assuredly, John 6, verse 26, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, but not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures for everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give give you because the God, God the Father has sent his seal set his seal upon him verse 32 then Yeshua said to them most assuredly I say to you Moses did not give you the bread from heaven but my father gives you the true bread from heaven the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world so Yeshua is making this correlation between this miracle feeding people and himself he's Messiah he's come He's the bread of life, right? I know that from this passage we also get many other mystical meanings which have no basis in Scripture, such as uh, eating a wafer, somehow somehow uh, experiencing the very body of him physically, which is, is just beyond the pale of silly. It's pagan. It is. Sorry. Those of you who come from a Catholic background, I apologize. Um, there's some very good things if you came from a Catholic background that you bring with you. Very good things. That's not one of them. Um, walking on water, verse 22. And we got to stop. Uh, we ran out of time, as always. Matthew 14, 22. says, Immediately, Yeshua made his disciples get into the boat and before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. This is his plan. He wants this to happen. And when he sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Here we see it again. Now, when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now, in the fourth watch of the night, Yeshua went to them, walking on the sea. When his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately, Yeshua spoke to, spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. Is he, uh, is he addressing their immediate fear? Yes. But is there something more that he wants them to be? Ad- yes, absolutely. I hope that they remember this, and they did. When everything falls apart, he's the one that walks in the ways. You know, whatever we thought or believed about him, but he's the one that walked in the ways. Why? It may not seem a big deal to you, you person of science and modern technology. It's a big deal, period. You can't walk on the ways. And the only one in Scripture that walks in a ways is the Almighty Himself. That's just remarkable. That's impossible. He walks on the waves. And what we see is, now we see something more. He's a great teacher. He's the bread sent from heaven. Wait, He's something more. He walks on waves. This is not just a miracle. It's a statement. It's actually... In an odd sort of way, it's an ontological statement. A statement of being. Who is he? He is not just a king. He's not just the Davidic king. He's something more. 
Why doesn't he answer the question for us right there? Wouldn't it be nice and easy? Shore up our theology and immediately go, well, he's, he's God. Why doesn't he do it? He never does. He gets close. He's the Son of God. Paul gets closer. He was there. By him all things were created. John gets close. The word was with God. The word was God. Does he ever really say it? Listen, answer your critics this way. What does Scripture say? I'll go with that. When someone goes, you never said he was God, you can just say, well, I agree. But please, what does he say? What does he describe? Maybe it's unthinkable. Maybe that's why he doesn't say it. Maybe it's incomprehensible. Maybe it's beyond the concept of man's mind to imagine that the infinite God can be here in finite man. We need to close. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Yeshua. We thank you for the, the precious gift that we have been given in him. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to a calling far beyond our imagination, far beyond our human ability. We know that we cannot keep your law, that we cannot obey you fully. We know that we cannot earn your pleasure. And yet, Father, you have called us into a righteous walk with a perfectly righteous Yeshua. And Father, we thank you that you have enabled us through the gift of your Holy Spirit to be obedient to you and to find ourselves pleasing in your sight because of the perfect work of our Master for our sake. Bless us this week, we pray. In Yeshua's name, Amen.